This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. I had zero ground contact. It was well beyond scud running at this point, and visibility around me was, of course, zero. My fear was that if I turned to try to make a 180 out of it, I just had this thought running through my head, don't change altitude. For all I knew, there could be super cooled liquid droplets, like the horror stories you hear where the wings just ice up within seconds. And I just was very hesitant and almost just frozen in place, just too hesitant to turn back. Welcome to another episode of There I Was, a podcast where we put you in the cockpit with pilots in demanding situations, and we learn how they flew out of them. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Today's guest is Michael Corey. Michael flies out of the tri-state area of Arizona. He earned his private pilot's license in 2018. He's single-engine land qualified with a high-performance complex endorsement. He owns a 1969 Cherokee 140, which has been upgraded to a 160. He's got about 375 total GA hours, and today he's going to share a story about a VFR and IMC scenario. Mike, thanks and welcome to the There I Was podcast. Thank you. Appreciate it. So, Mike, welcome. You have a VFR into IMC story, and you escaped, which I'm very happy to hear about. A lot of times that doesn't happen. I know you were flying out of your home airport in Sun Valley, A20, and heading up to St. George, Sierra Golf Uniform. So, tell us your story. Sure, not a problem. Um, and I appreciate you well, letting me tell us. Hopefully, my hope is that others will hear this and hopefully not find themselves in the same situation. So I, I do appreciate it. But as it goes, we it's not the first time I've made the flight. I've actually done the flight once before. And so I was familiar with the area, which is probably one thing that helped me among others. But what happened was we had set out. There were four of us in total. Well, five, if you count my six-month-old son. But my wife and I, my son, and then another couple that are friends of ours from work uh, decided to get an Airbnb and we were going to set out and stay for a few days and then come back home. So uh, what we had decided, uh, since I'm limited by useful load and seating, is that I would take, you know, usually I'll take a person with me and the other couple can go by car and we have a vehicle at the destination. So what happened was I decided to take my friend with me, who's the husband of the other couple. And he is also working on his private pilot, or will be soon. And so he likes to go whenever he has the chance just to get some experience, secondhand experience. So I've been watching the weather very, very closely, um, as is my practice. I'm, you could almost say, obsessive when it comes to just watching trends and making sure that, you know, I pick the best possible window with fuel prices, I, you know, and spending the money that I do. I, I like the flight to be ideal if I can help it. 
the week prior I had been watching and, and it's, you know, the middle of March and, you know, we can still have some pretty nasty winter weather coming through even as far down as we are in Arizona. So I had noticed that there was a pretty good cold front coming down the, the day that basically we were supposed to leave. And so I, my original plan was, as I noticed this happening, was to just scrub the flight and we were going to drive at that point. But as it turned out the day before, I had noticed a change, a pretty significant change where the cold front was going to be kind of delayed or held in place by a warm front from the south. Being aware, of course, that that can sometimes lead to a lot of precipitation, I, I just kind of watched it for a day or so and, and figured out that if I left at a certain time in the morning, I could avoid a lot of the precip that had melted off the night before and still avoid the strong cold front winds, which were eventually going to push their way through by the end of that day. So we decided to leave around, I would say, seven o'clock that next morning you know, did a last check and a briefing just to make sure destination and en route was going to be good. And we set out with full fuel, you know, everything was running well, pre-flight went well. And I would say for a good 90% of the flight, it was very uneventful. There were some scattered areas of light precip that had melted away kind of in the hours leading up to us leaving. And, you know, you can tell there's always the little sheets coming down that, you know, that kind of tells you there's an area of precip. And for the most part, it was light enough that we either deviated slightly or went through and it turned out not to be anything. Temperatures were cold at, at 7,500, which is where I go to make this particular flight. Uh, it was about 30 degrees, give or take. So, Mike, let me ask you, as I follow along and you head out uh, northeast out of uh, A20, you're down at around 700 feet elevation or so, and you've got to climb up and over some kind of a, a mesa or a ridge, you know, the Black Mountains, and to get up probably about 5,000 feet or so. They have some peaks that go up to 7,500 or so, right? So was that what you were dealing with? You were heading into rising terrain and heading into the area where the weather was supposed to develop? Yes. And if you can see there, the airport, the destination airport is actually situated in a valley that's only about, I would say, around 2,500 feet. But just prior to that, yes, there is some elevated mesa-like terrain. And then basically the whole way, it's uh, kind of like an oscillation between canyon rising terrain and some more flatlands um, as you go west towards Lake Mead. It's just widely varying terrain the whole way. Yeah, seems like it. Okay. And at 7,500, I mean, we're basically well above any terrain. And as far as I can see, mountain obscuration isn't a factor. And if I recall, I don't believe there were any active mountain obscuration airmets for my route. But there was some in effect just north of the airport because there are some much larger. I know there's a 10,000 plus foot mountain just north of St. George. And my thinking was, if I avoided going any further north, I should be well clear of the weather. And so that was the first, first assumption made there. Okay. So you're about how far into your flight, halfway into your flight or so? Um, before the incident, I had made it, I mean, within 15 or 20 miles of the airport before anything adverse even took place. So most of the flight goes well, you're cruising along, and um, so far so good. What happened? How'd you get into trouble? So first sign of anything being off, and I am equipped with ADS-B, which has, admittedly has its limitations, but I wasn't getting any strong radar returns until 
I would say 10 miles north of the airport where the, the mountains, the larger peaks are. And of course there's some, you know, heavy precip areas there, but prior to that, I'm not getting any really strong returns, but visually I can see some scattered areas like we'd been encountering the whole flight. And just prior to us heading over the elevated Mesa train, which is anywhere between 4,500 and 5,000 feet in elevation, I'm noticing that there is a, a layer of clouds, not terribly thick, that is probably around 6,000 feet or so, 6.5. And that is so far in line with what I'm expecting based on the information I'm getting at the, the weather I'm getting at the destination airport, which is reporting ceilings around 6.5. Or so. So, so far, I'm not terribly surprised, but uh, we are noticing at this point, just at the start of the Mesa like terrain, that there is uh, again another sheen of what looks like precip coming down. But slightly east of my route, I, I see an opening where I can basically I have contact with the ground and I can see and it looks clear. So I just I tell my passenger, okay, well, we're going to deviate slightly east and go through this opening and it looks clear and we should be fine to descend down into the valley at that point once we've crossed the terrain and as we're descending we're dropping through six five and then six i think is where i was probably about six thousand before i really noticed that things were starting to turn around on me i i made it past the sheet of precip that i'd seen which is now to my west and slightly behind me and it still seems for the most part clear so i'm starting to descend down to stay below the cloud deck and still above the Mesa terrain. So somewhere around 6,000 and then seemingly out of nowhere, just blizzard conditions. Just, it went from just good visibility and avoiding sheets of precip to just hard IFR blizzard conditions. Hmm. So at this point I have descended to the point where I am nervous to make any sudden changes in bank or direction, much less try to turn around and climb back over the little ridges that I descended below to get over the Mesa terrain. I knew that at that point I had, I would say almost zero ground contact. I mean, it was well beyond scud running at this point and visibility around me was of course zero. And I knew at the altitude that I was at where it was around 30 degrees or so, that the precip was very hard packed snow just bouncing off you know the wing and so i i wasn't concerned about ice exactly where i was but my fear was that if i turned to try to make a 180 out of it i would have to climb a bit and my i just had this thought running through my head don't change altitude because i didn't know for all i knew there could be super cooled liquid droplets you know like the horror stories you hear where the wings just ice up within seconds and i just was very hesitant and almost just frozen in place just too hesitant to turn back so let me just set this stage then you're really in a box here because you're headed to your destination and as i follow along in foreflight here you deviate to the west and kind of drop down off the mesa to get below the cloud layer and get visibility as you do that you go into imc you really can't turn around and do the 180 out because you've got that mesa behind you that you'd have to climb over without being able to see it. And yet in front of you is more IMC conditions that you just got into. Correct. So you're in quite the quandary here. What'd you do? So at this point, and, and I would say for a VFR platform, the plane is very well equipped, as well equipped as I can have without having advanced WASP GPS. I mean, I have 
ForeFlight on my iPad, and I have that paired to a GDL50, which is basically an ADSB in receiver, but it also has a backup AHARS, which is another thing that helped that day. And in addition to my normal six pack vacuum system, and I also had active at the time synthetic vision, which is probably the number one thing that saved my life. I mean, obviously the training, but mm. as far as instrumentation, that synthetic vision is just invaluable. Let me ask you, you said training. So had you had any more than the three hours of hood time that you got during your private pilot's license? Had you had any more IFR training? Yes. And as a matter of fact, out here in the desert, we have occasional periods in the year where we will have low ceilings. It doesn't very happen very often, usually in winter. And the following day, you know, we'll have some scattered puffy clouds that will be lingering around four or 5,000 feet. And I'll usually go up if I can get a safety pilot with me and we'll go and, and just practice real IMC, not just under the hood. And so I'd like to say that my currency and just sporadically acclimating myself to those kinds of conditions, maybe that also played a role because had I just come off of my private pilot training was several years ago. And of course, only having those three hours doesn't really prepare you for something like that. So there you are, you're in the IMC conditions and you were telling us the value of the synthetic vision. So continue talking about that, please. Right. So having a, a passenger with me, even though he wasn't you know, licensed, it was still an opportunity for me to delegate what little tasks that I could, knowing that he's not that experienced. But my first thought was, I need, I told him, I need you to watch out for icing developing. I mean, there wasn't much else he could do, but I figured I don't need to be worrying about that and looking at the leading edge of the wing. I need to be just focusing on flying. And so I had him just, just look at the wing, just let me know. I mean, not that there was a whole lot I could have done in that moment, but that was best I could do. So at that moment, you know, then I, I, I think before, before I really got just this sense of purpose and direction. I think my first initial thought was when my visibility dropped to zero and the, the blizzard is just, you know, hitting me hard. My first thought was just like this, almost like a resignation and a thought that, you know, this is it. I made, I made the big mistake that pilots can make and I'm going to be a statistic and there's just, there's no way I'm getting out of this. I've seen enough videos to know that the chances are are very slim for a survival of that kind of encounter. So and then it just something came over me. Uh, it wasn't more than a few seconds. I made this switch in my brain, but something just came over me. And I said, you know what? I have a, a son that I'd like to see again. And I, I just I, I can either just let things happen and just spiral down and become another VFR and IMC fatality where I can do something about it. I mean, there's you know, I might as well try. And so at that moment, I just shut off to any sensations of disorientation, any wondering or questioning of whether or not I was going to make it. And I just, it just, the training kicked in and I just went into focus mode. And that's when I really just decided that the two things I was going to really watch very closely were just attitude indicator, synthetic vision, which as it turned out, there was an attitude indicator with the AHARs on my screen. So I had a backup. So there was no excuse to, you know, what if my instrument's not right? What if, I mean, I had backup after backup, so there was no excuse not to push my way through. So at this point, you know, I'm just back and forth synthetic vision. And and when, when I say that that really saved my bacon is, uh, you know, I noticed that in making this decision to really just 
push forward, I was already starting to drift towards one of the smaller little peaks that you can probably see there on the on the topo map. And I looked over the synthetic vision and sure enough, there it is in red, you know, and I'm getting closer to it. And I said, oh, so I banked left, you know, and then I banked left and I'm trying to get my bearings. And then sure enough, another peak off to my left. And so using the synthetic vision and making sure I stayed level, I was able to work my way into this crevice where I was low enough to where I wasn't worried about potentially getting into worse icing, but I was also high enough above the terrain to where I had some breathing room. And I just stayed more or less on that heading and worked my way into down into the valley where I knew the field was visual. And in fact, I finally got the ATIS to come in, which took what seemed like an eternity to pick up just because of my low altitude. And then I heard field was visual and ceilings were what have you 6,000 feet so that's that's really how that played out so you knew if you could make your way through that using your synthetic vision that you could eventually get to the field at the altitude you were at and it would clear up yes and what a great level of confidence that was to know that if you could just be stable just collect yourself avoid the terrain fly through that you would get to that clear airspace. Yes. And it sounds like that just must have been a joyful feeling when the weather cleared up and you broke out of the weather. Oh, yes. And I I don't remember saying really anything the whole time. I think the last thing I said to my passenger when we first got into it was, well, expletive, uh, this is bad. This is really bad. And that was the last thing I remember saying to him. And then I was silent. It was just music went off. Everything was just get focused on the instruments and get out of it. And then when we saw the runway, it was just like you could just hear the sigh of relief. And, you know, then it was a very normal approach at that point. And it's funny, I and thinking back on it, it was, you know, when you're in a crisis situation, you don't overthink simple things like landing and flying an approach. But I remember is one of the better landings I had made <laughs> in, in recent weeks because you're just you're not overthinking. You're just trying to get on the ground and, and you automatically just do what you're supposed to do. There's no overthinking going on. So how long would you say, Mike, you were in IMC conditions? I don't know the exact time, but my guess is based on just my speed and, and how far the terrain extended. It was probably eight eight or ten minutes, but I would say it felt like, uh, I mean, a month. I mean, it was just oh, yeah. felt interminable. Eight, eight or ten minutes of inadvertent IMC, eight, that's, that's a long time, mm-hmm. especially when you're in mountainous terrain like you were. And you hit on something that I think is worth discussing more that – it seems like when you got into that, you were initially hit with this anxiety and this feeling of close to panic, and you were able to suppress that, thankfully, so that you could think and act calmly and deliberately. Can you talk through that whole mental process again of being able to feel that, acknowledge it, and then insist that you overcome it? Yes, and in the moment, it just it was just very crystallizing, and and I guess uh, enough time has passed where if I really thought about it, I could probably dredge up those feelings. But I mean, it really, it, when I think back, it was like time dilation. It all seemed to kind of stretch out and then just snap back into focus in a, just a moment. But I would say there was a good fifteen to twenty seconds where it, it was almost akin to when you're driving down the freeway and then a few minutes passes and then all of a sudden you think to yourself well how did i get here i mean i know i'm driving because I, my brain knows what to do but i don't remember any of it and that that's almost what happened is that i was so caught up in the outcome and what was going to happen and there was just no way out of it 
that I don't really know how I initially survived those first so many seconds of indecision. I was just muddling through and you know, doing some semblance of instrument flying. But I do remember I was back and forth between looking outside just in disbelief, you know, that just that moment of this can't be happening and where's the ground and where's anything. And there was a lot of back and forth, which is very bad when you're instrument flying. That's where the spatial disorientation comes from. And I think it was right about the time that I noticed that I was still above terrain. It wasn't all hope wasn't lost yet. I had synthetic vision was still working and i just that's when it came to me that you know what this can be survivable i'm not icing up there there's i can you know there's just it would be dumb of me to just let this happen and be a defeatist when i can do something about it and that's when i just started thinking you know i have a family i have something to motivate me i just i have to tell you i've heard that so many times when somebody is in extremis and they suddenly think about their loved ones and think some version of, I can't do this to them. Mm-hmm. And that was it. And that, that sort of helps them gather themselves, get themselves under control mentally, fight back into the situation to start owning the situation and driving it instead of being driven by it. Exactly. And that seems to me to be a pretty important part of a successful outcome of a situation like this because... You know, you you made it, so it's easy for us to look back at it and say, oh, well, he made it. But you were an extremist, and our our stats show that somebody of your circumstance, your experience level, couple three years of flying, couple 300 hours, that gets themselves into this situation in mountainous terrain usually doesn't make it out. Right, and that thought went through my head as well. And that was really what ultimately it wasn't me potentially not making it that got me. It was the thought that I, you know, just the thought of my wife finding out that that's what happened and and not being able to hear from me and no goodbye, no nothing. Just hearing that I just, that was it. I was gone. Just that was just enough to shake off the defeatism and the dread. It wasn't even the thought of losing my life. It was just that her and my son not having just it being ripped away from them because of something I did. That was what really just kicked everything into gear. Hey listeners, do you love aviation? Did you know that general aviation contributes billions to the U.S. economy every year and is a vital pipeline for military and commercial pilot force? AOPA works to ensure the vitality of the aviation industry and supports our freedom to fly. Join us and become a member now at AOPA.org. You'll become part of a worldwide community of aviation enthusiasts. We'd love to have you. Find out more at AOPA.org. So let's talk about how you got into suddenly the IMC conditions, because that's still a little fuzzy to me. You're, you're heading there. You're only, you said, maybe 20 minutes out, something like that. So you know the weather's starting to come down, so you start descending to stay below it. And then you said all of a sudden it came out of kind of nowhere. It just started snowing because there was a, a deck above you. you. You were underneath an overcast. Just talk to us how you kind of suddenly just eased your way in too deep. It's, it's strange because that right there is probably the fuzziest part of the whole experience is when the transition from it being visual to it not being acceptable for visual flight happened. My, my best guess based on my kind of spotty recollection is that I noticed – as I was coming up to this Mesa terrain, that there was a lower ceiling and there was a sheet of precip 
almost right in front of me. And that's when I decided to deviate east uh, a little bit to try to get around that sheet of precip because it looked to be clearer beyond that and slightly to the east. But I don't I'm it's hard for me to remember whether or not I could see the snow falling and the precip falling as I was going into it or whether I had already gotten down and situated and around that first wall of precip and then it started coming at me because obviously the precip has to start falling at some point it doesn't just you know it's not just there magically and obviously there's a point where the clouds get heavy enough and you know i just gravity takes over so i that part is hard for me to recall okay but if i'm honest with myself i i would say that whether or not it was a situation where I just, I was in it and then all of a sudden it was coming down and and starting to get thicker. There was really no reason for me to have gotten to that point. The smarter thing to do would have been to just circumnavigate the whole area or if it had been really bad to just simply turn around. But that's the part that's fuzzy is, is exactly when the transition happened from VFR to IMC. Best I know is I had gotten around that wall of precip. It seemed like it was going to be clear. I could see the ground, and then all of a sudden, I couldn't. Okay. So a, a couple other factors were playing against you here. One, I think, snuck up on you because we always like to share with people, you know, you always want to keep an out. So if things got bad, you know your bailout direction. Like it was getting bad. Oh, it suddenly got worse than I thought, but I know it was clear behind me. In your case, though, you had to descend off a mesa to get below it. So it kind of sneaks up on you that you don't really have that out behind you anymore. So if you get into you really have no more outs. Your only way is to continue forward with that mesa behind you. And realistically, I think that if if I had been clear headed enough the moment that the visibility degraded, whatever point that happened at, Obviously, in retrospect, the best choice would have been to, as the visibility is going to immediately turn around. But because I had that moment of freezing up where I was, you're just kind of frozen, you're scared, you're just, you just, you lock up, you're in disbelief. And then the few seconds that went by, and you know how it goes, people I'm sure talk about it all the time, is is the longer you're in it and the longer you wait to make that decision, the harder it is to reverse it. You just get more and more committed and more stuck, and that's when the panic sets in. So if I had immediately had the presence of mind to say, nope, and just book it the other direction, that would have been ultimately the best way to go. The only thing I can say is that being in the situation that I was as deep in as I was, knowing that to try to ascend and turn back and get over terrain that led me there, I, I I did the best I could under the circumstances I found myself in. It wasn't right that I ended up there, but yeah. Well, yeah, once you got in there. So that was another out that you didn't have. So there's a really good conversation going on now about VFR and IMC escape and whether or not we should continue teaching the 180 degree turn as an escape or whether we should also promote in the right circumstance a wings level climb to then contact ATC or to continue on to clear airspace. In your case, that wouldn't have been a factor because you were worried about ice. Yes. 
And if you had gone too much higher, then now suddenly your situation gets even more complicated because you start picking up ice. And I may not have, but it could have. And that was what I didn't know, you know. But you were worried about it, right? And it was and it was a fair worry because you had moisture and you had, you know, the temperature. So the conditions were right. Correct. So that was another out that really wasn't available to you. What worries us in the in the instructor world about the 180 degree turn is when people get into IMC and they're not trained and they begin a 180 degree turn, therein starts this, the conditions that can induce spatial disorientation. Mm-hmm. And so while theoretically they just came from clear airspace, turn them around and get them back into clear airspace, that certainly has some merit. It also has some merit in some conditions to just wings level and climb and work your way out of it. In your case, that really wasn't much of a factor. And I think another issue that you were facing is you didn't have a lot of good alternate airports to go to. As I look through your terrain, if I draw a straight line between your your departure and your destination, you don't have a lot of good airports in here to uh, divert to. So once it started closing in around you, your nearest and just about your only option from where the weather was to keep pressing towards your destination and hope that that forecast and that ATIS is correct. And and that was the other mistake I made is I was, again, then this is where the, the false confidence comes in is that, and that's how it is out here flying out west. You know, the airports sometimes are, are few and far in between and there's big terrain changes separating them. But my, my I'd already been there before, which didn't help the, the confidence level. But my thinking was, well, there's really not much of a chance that it can go that bad now that I, especially since I was so close to the destination when everything went wrong is in my mind, there was just so little chance of anything going that wrong within 15 miles of the airport that a thought of an alternate wasn't really even on my radar, um, which was another mistake is that I should have actually thought, well, you know what there, I should head back this way. Really. I mean, at that point, the weather system being as big as it ended up being, it would have been better just to, you know, go home because my, the other party hadn't even left. I mean, they, they were supposed to drive up hours after we originally arrived. So it would have been no big deal to just head back home, you know, just call it a loss on the fuel and just carpool up. But, you know, it just, just that false sense of security really weighs in. Hmm. Someone also brought up, I was telling a a pilot friend about, you know, someone asked me, well, what about declaring an emergency? And at the time, again, you know, my focus was just flying the airplane. Even if that had occurred to me as an option, I don't know that I would have spent energy and focus away from the instruments to even dial in the frequencies that I needed. Yeah. But as it turned out, that wouldn't really have been a good option either. You know, to get, you know, again, in the flatlands, getting flight following, I mean, you can cruise to your destination as low as two or 3,000 feet and have flight following, no problem. Out here, I mean, it's just the Wild West. There's just, you have to be so high up to really get good radar and comm coverage that it almost defeats the purpose. You know, if you're, especially if you're making a shorter flight and you don't want to burn all the fuel getting high enough to, you know, you just kind of are, I'm just accustomed to just going on my own. And so at the level I was at and it being an uncontrolled field, there was nobody to call. There was no help. It was just, I was just me and the weather. And that's just another thing I really didn't think about till after. Yeah. You know, you bring up a good point. 
on the East Coast, we use flight following a lot more than I use when I fly out west. And I, I fly out in the Mountain West quite a bit. And it's because of that terrain issue that you mentioned where it's tougher than to pick you up on radar and stuff to get good communications. So you're right. You tend to fly more out there without flight following, at least compared to what we do on the East Coast. Right. And Mike, you mentioned ADSB weather. And I've also found that to be the case out there in the mountainous regions, you know, ADSB weather is reliant upon uh, ground stations for, for transmittal to your airplane, mm-hmm. whereas satellite weather isn't. And I have just found that having satellite weather out there in the mountain region is so beneficial because you don't have to worry about being in reception of ground stations. You have so much more reliability of the signal and the coverage. And there's less delays. Uh, you know, I hear, of course, with the ADSB, there can be as much as an eight minute delay on what's really happening. And another thing a friend of mine brought up, and of course, at the time, you don't think about a lot of these things, but there's a layer on ForeFlight that will show you it's the cloud layer. And even if the radar returns weren't picking anything up, when I landed, I, of course, thought of it. You turn on the cloud uh, selector and you can adjust your altitude. And sure enough, there it was. It crystal clear it showed a thick layer right at where I ended up flying through that I didn't see on the radar. And so, of course, if I had been in doubt as I was approaching this area, I could have pulled that up. I mean, I could obviously see the cloud, you know, in about what altitude it was at, but it just gives you a little more information about the density as you move your altitude selector up and down to see how opaque and how thick this, mm. you know, because sometimes the radar just isn't, isn't very reliable, you know. Yeah. So, Mike, as you look back on this scenario, share with us what, what are your takeaways? What are your lessons learned that we can all take away? Um, I think just one of the main things is, Sometimes it's not enough to be very, like I say, fastidious and almost obsessive with weather because I, you know, and that's one of the things I pride myself on is that I, I have had very few, if any, uh, rattling instances while flying. I mean, certainly never any IMC related, but you know, I'm very choosy about what days I decide to fly. I don't like to, I won't take off if there's reports of really bad turbulence, not that I couldn't handle it. I mean, it's happened, but I go to great lengths to avoid what could be, you know, inadvertent poor conditions in any respect. And so I guess knowing that about myself almost made me think that, well, I'm so careful with my planning that I I just, the possibility of hitting something, it hasn't happened in 370 whatever hours. So the chances of it happening now are, are, are slim. And these are the things we tell ourselves. And, you know, here out in the desert, you know, having an IFR rating is almost, almost, I wouldn't say pointless, but I would say that, you know, especially with the flying I do where I'm not making very long cross countries, generally I'm only up, you know, between two and four hours at a whack. And, you know, there's just, it just seems kind of pointless to to get an IFR rating when that's not the flying I do. I fly for leisure. I'm not a commuter. And so having so much, so many hours under my belt without any instances and living in a climate where we really only have a few IFR days a year, you just kind of get lulled into a, a sense of just disbelief that something like that could ever happen. And so that's really what took me by surprise. So I think just the big moral of the story is just, you know, it really can happen to anyone anywhere at any time no matter what your prior experiences have been. And that's the other thing is not having been 
into real IMC. I'm not talking little puffers, you know, of clouds hanging out. I'm talking not ever having been in a situation where I went from VFR to hard IFR. I really didn't have a good frame of reference, you know, and so maybe I would have been able to better recognize the signs of it turning that way had I been flying it more regularly and being instrument rated. So, I mean, there is something to be said for just it just being all the more surprising of an occurrence because I just don't have experience in what those conditions really look like in real life, you know? Yeah, I, I will say an IFR rating is valuable for a couple of reasons. So much of the time when you get an IFR rating, you will use it in circumstances just like this, where most of the way is clear, all you need is a little bit of time to get through a deck to shoot an approach. The clouds are maybe 500 or 1,000 feet thick. Mm-hmm. You just need a little clearance to get through the cloud and shoot an approach. Or on the other side, you just got a little fog bank, and all you need to do is climb out and get above that fog mm-hmm. bank, and your destination is clear. I have found overwhelmingly that's how I use the IFR rating. And the other piece I will say is that it just makes you a better pilot. IFR will teach you a lot of precision and a lot more about how our aviation system, or our national airspace system works. I've found that to be one of the more useful tools to get to increase your skills as a pilot. I also want to ask you, Mike, as now you have the benefit of hindsight. And one of the things that we've learned as we look at how pilots make decisions is the very first decision that we make in a situation like you had where you had a go-no-go decision, right? You're looking at all the factors, you're studying the weather, you've put a lot of thought into it, and you finally make your decision, okay, I'm going to go. And research has shown that as human beings, once we do all of that assessing, all of that mental work to make a decision, we're then reluctant to revisit that decision. And what we will have a tendency to do is ignore any information that suggests we should revisit it, and then we'll emphasize any information that we find, however small, that may suggest that we should continue, that our decision is a good decision. So we get imbalanced, and we move from the decision mode to the execution mode. And I wonder, it seemed like some of that was at play here, where you made your decision to go, and as you're going, you're kind of picking up on some things that maybe I should revisit this decision, but you're focused on execution and getting to your destination. Do you think that was at play here? I actually do, you know, and that I think what you're referring to is like the confirmation bias where you just kind of, yeah, you tend to get very focused on the factors that support your initial decision, which me being very thorough in my planning, once I make a decision and in my history, it has shown me in the 370 whatever hours is that almost in every case, whatever decision I end up making turns out to be the right decision. And so that, again, adds fuel to the fire that, well, I made this decision. I had so much information. I don't really see that turning around. You know, you just you just get into this, not an invincibility per se, but you just you you overestimate your ability to make decisions because you have history behind you that has guided you through the correct path each and every time prior Uh, You mentioned something that we also found in our research with some of the books that we're using. We We do a seminar called Why Good Pilots Make Bad Decisions, where we discuss some of these concepts and the books that where they come from. But one of the things we learned is that if you're a good decision maker, you're a bad redecision maker. So if you're a good thinker, you're not very good at rethinking. 
And it's kind of what you're mentioning is you have developed a lot of confidence in your decision making. And so that confidence can lead to overconfidence and lead to a less willingness to revisit it. Correct. And yeah. so that seemed to be a fact with you. You're, you put a lot of time and effort. You're very studious. You're very proud of how much effort you put into the study that you do. So it makes you confident in that, and it makes you sort of less willing to go back and revisit it. And that's a factor I think everybody listening to this podcast can realize that all of us as pilots face that issue. Yes. And I think maybe the last factor to consider that I like safety and security and having a, a flight with relatively low, you know, well-mitigated risk involved because I'm not a big risk taker as a person. You know, I'm not like into extreme sports or this and that. This is like my one thing that I do that maybe has a small element of risk, but I mitigate it the best I can is I, I've gotten to the point, especially in the last year where I have branched out and taken flights that are not out of my scope as a VFR pilot, but maybe might be more challenging than my average mission. And so I think that was another factor is that I saw this as an opportunity to fly in weather that I didn't think would be anywhere close to the limits of a VFR pilot, but might be a little out of my comfort zone. And what I was always taught by my flight instructor is it's okay to have personal minimums and you need to, but there are cases where sometimes you want to push yourself not to a zone of danger or a major risk, but to one where you're in a situation where maybe it wouldn't be your ideal flight, but you might get an experience that would teach you something. And so my thinking as I'm taking this flight is, hey, there's some scattered precip and there's some things going on I wouldn't normally be in. This is something I need. This is a good learning experience. And I let that unfortunately push me into something that could have gone beyond good learning experience into a fatal mistake. Yeah. So I think there's an important point there. And that is, I get asked all the time, how do I increase my skill level without getting beyond my comfort level? Right. And the answer to that is you can't. <laughs> you have to push your comfort level to increase your skill level. But two, two factors are really important. It has to be planned and you have to have an out. Right. So if you're going to push your skill level and push your comfort level, make sure it's planned and it's not done ad hoc, sort of in the moment to go, oh, well, the weather's worse than I thought. Let me see if my, right. let me push my skills a little bit, right? Wrong time to do it. It's got to be planned and premeditated. And the second thing is to keep an out. So, okay, I'm going to go push my skills today and push my comfort level. But if I get too deep, I've got an easy escape back to where I am comfortable. So those are important aspects to remember when you're going to press your limits and press your skills a little bit. I wonder, Mike, if I can ask you, is there one point in the flight now with the benefit of hindsight where you can look at it and say, you know, that right there should have been my final indicator that this was not going to work out and I should have turned back? I think it's probably right about when I was coming up to that first wall of precip, which looked a little heavier than the stuff I'd either been flying around or through before, where it wasn't just these wispy little tendrils coming down, but it looked more like solid, like real precip. And I just, at that point, I should have said, you know what, this could be a sign that things are going to deteriorate. Instead, I took it as, well, it's it's similar to what I've seen along the route. And there's been a way around each time, and it's probably no different. But I made the mistake of, again, understanding of big picture weather theory, this area of Mesa terrain being as far north from my original takeoff point as it was, 
where the cold front was starting to push through, I had just kind of had a lapse in understanding where you know logically that when you have elevated terrain, you have more lifting action and, you know, you have cold temperatures and moisture. And I should have really dawned on me at that point that, hey, I'm going over elevated terrain. These ceilings are a little lower because there's some extra lifting action and there's a lot of wind coming out of the north. And I should have known that there was going to be a lot more potential for precip over that area than over the rest of the flight. That coupled with seeing the heavier sheets coming down here and there, that should have been the point where I said, you know what, I need to really revisit this. Hmm. Yeah. That's illustrative for us to see. It's so easy to see in hindsight, isn't it? And yet for all of us as pilots, it's so difficult to see in the moment. For whatever reason, we're clouded with a desire to get there, so focus on execution. And it's hard for us to see what in hindsight is a very clear decision criteria and something for all of us to keep in mind. Yes. Well, Mike, thanks so much for sharing your story with us, and I'm thankful that you made it out. I'm thankful that you had the presence of mind to collect yourself, put that panic feeling aside as it started to bubble up, and focus on the resources that you had in front of you and some good decision-making to get yourself out of a situation that a lot of pilots don't make it out of. Yes, I agree. Thank you. Well, a harrowing story. And Mike makes it out to tell the story, and we're so thankful that he did. Some important lessons come out of that. And the first one is the power of that first decision that we make. When faced with a go or no-go decision, if we finally make that decision to go, so important for us as pilots to realize we will be reluctant to revisit that decision. And so realizing that will help us make a more conservative decision on the front end and maybe help us to be more likely to revisit it if we see things that surprise us airborne. And it also stresses having a bailout direction, knowing where the weather's coming from, where the terrain is, so that if you go into an area where you think it might get questionable, you always know your bailout direction to where you can turn to safety. And if there is no bailout direction, that's a real clear indication that this is not a good idea to make this flight. So we're thankful he made it out to tell his story. Thanks for joining us on this edition of There I Was, alongside our producer, David O'Leary. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Until next time, fly safe. Hey, listeners, if you like these podcasts and you'd like to help us continue providing them, please consider a donation to help our efforts. Go to aopafoundation.org slash donate. That's aopafoundation, all one word, dot org slash donate. And thanks for your support. There I Was is produced by the AOPA Air Safety Institute. If you'd like to hear other episodes, submit comments, or submit your own story to potentially be featured on the show, please visit airsafetyinstitute.org slash there I was. Thanks for listening.